everybody. We're going to uh, take our seats and uh, open back up to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 17 and 18. Um, and as um, I heard a, a number of people comment after the reading, that was intense. Okay, so um, we've got some things that we're going to... Uh, We've got some things we're going we're gonna to tackle today. Um, I will say this, man. It is such a joy. I think about like the life of our church. Um, and we're a young church, right? Uh, relatively young church, right? Um, and I think about like where we've been over the past few years. And Courtney and I often reminisce about the days in which like our um, son Judah was the only child here. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so now we have more children here that we're able to um, disciple and to love, and it is such a joy to be in worship and to hear children. Like, um, that is not ever an annoyance for us. It is, in fact, uh, music, okay? We love that because we prayed and we asked and petitioned the Lord to send um, children and families, and He is faithful. And so, um, such a great reminder just in service this morning to have families gathered together in this room. Uh, we're Worshiping Jesus together. So, um, what an exciting time. Hey, we're in Genesis chapter 17. Um, We are, um, through Genesis, tracing God's work to bring about rescue and redemption for sinners. Now, we are sinners, and so this is um, really good news. And we're going to spend some time this morning talking about how this um, truth uh, finds a home in Genesis chapter 17 and 18. But, let's kind of do some work in reflecting on where we have been over the past few weeks, which, if you can see from where you are, um, is uh, there's a slight glimpse here. Um, we're going to be transitioning into the next part of the board very soon, but um, Jacqueline Eves does a great job in providing some illustrations to go along with where we are as we work our way through this wonderful wonderful um, book, the story of beginnings. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, um, God states his intention. Genesis 12, verse 2, God states his intention as it relates to um, this man that we're reading about here this morning in at least half of our story, Abraham, um, and his um, desire to bring about great blessing through this man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. He says um, that he is going to bless those who bless Abram or Abraham and curse those who curses him. And through Abraham, he is going to bless all the families of the earth. Um, that is kind of this, this hinge point that we continue to reflect back on as we work our way through this book. In Genesis 17, God makes a covenant. Right? In Genesis 17, God makes a promise to be the God of Abraham and his descendants. In verse 7, he says this. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. We see in Genesis 17, God alluding to the nation's participation in this great blessing that is introduced in Genesis 17 verse 2. God's plan to to rescue Not only one nation, but peoples from every nation. Transforming sinful hearts and transferring citizenship to the kingdom of his beloved son. A good king and a king worthy of, as we will observe this morning, trust and love and worship. All actions called for and observable through Genesis 
um, 18 and 19. In Genesis 18 through 20, um, so I'm expanding out even a little bit beyond our reading this morning, we gain clarity as to how God is going to accomplish all of this. That which we mentioned from Genesis 12 and that which we observe from Genesis 17. We see salvation. In Genesis 18 through 20, we observe mercy and compassion accompanied by judgment, sin, need, right? That was, that was intense, right? That was, that was in, intense, which brings us around the following idea, which we're going to spend the next two weeks unpacking. And so make note of this. This is where we're going to be camped out over the next two weeks as we observe God's mercy and judgment from Genesis 18, 19, and next week transitioning into chapter 20. The big idea is this, that God blesses and rescues the righteous, while reserving judgment for the wicked. Right? That God blesses and rescues the righteous while reserving judgment for the wicked. So let's dive right into it. Right? Let's go to Genesis, um, let's go to Genesis chapter 18 as we observe the blessing of the Lord for Abraham and his bride. This is where we start. The blessing of the Lord for Abraham and his bride. We read in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. This is an idea that we've spent some time building upon over recent weeks. We see here the Lord reveal himself in this truly remarkable way. Theologically, what we observe here is known as a theophany. Well, that is the, the manifestation of the presence of God. We see the Lord right, appearing and, and residing right here beside and among Abraham. We have observed God speak to his creation. In fact, if we go all the way back to the beginning, we observe God creating by, as the author of Hebrews describes, the word of his power. When we see him speaking to individuals at various points along this journey, however, since the fall of man, this type of interaction has been absent. We've heard of God's plan to rescue, right? This seed that was to come to crush the evil one. Yet in this proximity, we learn some incredible things about Abraham and God and God and his creation. Do we understand what we're observing here in verse 1? Genesis 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. There's this proximity Right? There's this, there's this closeness. We've observed like audible communication between the Lord, right, and Abraham. And yet now we see this, this nearness, this closeness that tells us a lot of things about who God is. In verses two through the first half of verse six, from Abraham, we see an appropriate posture before the Lord. Now, let's say this. It is somewhat unclear as to exactly when Abraham reaches greatest understanding as to who stands before him. 
It's clear based on what we see in verse 1 and 2 and that which follows as preparations are made to, to care for and to feed these individuals that Abraham is aware that these are men of prominence, that they are important. But we don't know exactly when all the light bulbs begin to go off and hospitality transitions into a comprehension that these are um, more than simply important men. In verse 2, we see Abraham respond to the arrival of the Lord. It says in verse 2 that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of them. And when he saw them, he what? We're going to make note of these things. I want us to consider the response of Abraham in light of what we know to be true in light of the entirety of our reading this morning. That these men are more than simply important men. Right? There's, something, there's something bigger, there's something greater that's taking place here. How does Abraham respond? Well, he sees them and then he runs to them. From the tent door to, to meet them, he, as we continue our reading, bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. We have a a certain distinct advantage, don't we? We can read this entire passage in light of what we in light of what we know. Just who it is that stands before Abraham and and what it says about the way that he, the Lord, our God, works and how we ought to respond. Let's consider what we know in light of what we observe. God, again, condescending. Becoming becoming low, right? We, We talked about this a few weeks ago. Not simply content to speak into his creation, but instead we go a step further, don't we? He enters into his creation. We see that here observable in Genesis chapter 18. He condescends. He makes himself low because he's the Lord. Now, for you and I, this must be a source of of clarity. It highlights for us a a few very specific things about who God is. First, He is gracious. He's he's gracious. Well, how do we observe that through this very, very simple interaction that we observe in these first two verses? Well, He pursues Abraham. He, He goes to Abraham, we observe the heart of God to confront those who struggle with, if we remember what we heard in chapter 17, and even that which we see from Sarah in chapter 18, doubt. Right? He, he speaks to his people. Right? He pursues after his people. He becomes accessible to his people. He is treating Abraham as one that he desires interaction with. In fact, I think that we can go even one step further as we consider the very patient response from the Lord to the questions presented as this dialogue about Sodom uh, begins to, to build. Right, that the, the Lord desires not simply interaction with, but friendship with Abraham. 
That the Lord desires not simply interaction with, but friendship with you and and I. Now, as we consider this truth, there are some obstacles that must be overcome, correct? Right? That being, like, primarily our sin. Right? That the Lord desires friendship. We observe that in this part of the board, right? The, The part that's not up here anymore. Genesis 1 and 2. The intimacy that the Lord enjoys, like, with creation. Right? With, with Adam and with his bride. Friendship. Closeness. Only what is the response in Genesis chapter 3? There's a, a rejection. There is this, um, this, this buying into a, a lie that, that the Lord is holding out and that he is not all sufficient for ultimate satisfaction for his people. While the Lord is desiring friendship, we see that there is a rebellious streak that runs throughout human history, right? And it runs through each and every one of us. The the Lord desires this closeness, this intimacy, this friendship. The issue, however, is with our sin, right? That that we have rebelled, that we have rejected, right? That the friendship of the Lord, right? That we have sought to crown ourselves king as as opposed to embracing this humble posture, right? This closeness with the king. This is, this is the issue. The Lord desires, however, we see a rejection of this on humanity's part. And so this is going to be important as we continue to watch this story unfold. In Abraham, however, we do observe a, a right response to this realization. Abraham bows himself before the Lord. He asks the Lord to stay so that he might what? Well, so that he might serve him. Right? There's, this, there's this desire to, to serve those gathered before Abraham. Here we are reminded of certain New Testament instances. I don't know about you, but as I was reading through, and even now as we're, we're talking through this, I'm thinking about specific instances in which we observe humanity seeking to serve our great King, Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus' service to humanity. I'm reminded of the, the woman of Luke 7, right? who, 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 who serves the Lord in this really intimate and personal, personal way. I'm reminded of, of Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, in which he sought to, what? Serve his friends. Verses like Genesis 18.1 are, are humbling verses. Right? It's a great practice to, as we read God's word, as we, as we interact and engage with God in his word, to consider what his word says about who he is and how that naturally then ought to produce a certain posture within you and I. Here's what I mean by that. Right? Genesis 18.1 is humbling. Why? Well, because we see the need to approach our kind, just, powerful God with a lowly posture. Because any fellowship, right, any community, any friendship that we enjoy with him is a byproduct of his intentionality. Any any friendship that we enjoy with the Lord, 
Right? Any community that we enjoy with the Lord is a natural byproduct of his pursuit of us. We see that the Lord is indeed worthy of the service of his creation. How? Well, let's consider some truths observable in this passage. Is everybody with me still? Okay, he makes... God makes, he, he calls, he seeks, he leads, and he loves. I just caught us up on 17 chapters of Genesis in like seven seconds. What have we been doing for the past like six months? In Abraham, we observe a right response to a clear comprehension of these realities. In Abraham, we observe a right response to a clear comprehension of these realities centering on the nature of God. God makes, he calls, he seeks, he leads, and he does all of this out of a heart of love. But he does all of this out of a, a heart of compassion. And, and mercy, we, we get this when we understand our position prior to the intervention of the Lord. Let us not forget where Abraham was not too many chapters ago. Idolatrous, absent, distant from the Lord. And yet in this great show of compassion, the Lord seeks and he calls, he speaks, he, he rescues. And now, over the course of what we observe in the next few verses, we see that he even brings and speaks forth life. Abraham's response is a natural one. It's, it's our response. It's the response of God's people. How do we respond in light of who God is? How do we respond in light of what God has done? This is, this is a gospel-informed response. We're, we're like zooming out of here for a second. Like we're, le- we're levitating up, okay? Let's levitate for just a moment. We're levitating out of this. We're, we're coming out and we're looking down and we're considering all that God has done. His promise in Genesis 3, his faithfulness to sustain to, to keep, to advance, to preserve, to condescend, to give, to create, to call into. All of these things, these are all realities that we observe as we consider the redemptive narrative. Genesis 18 is not written in a vacuum. Neither is Genesis 19, neither is Genesis 20. We have to consider it from, from a redemptive perspective. We have to consider it in light of what we know to be true about all of who God is and what he has done. Only, only we don't stop there, right? We also enter into and we seek to understand all these, these wonderful realities concerning God that he so graciously communicates to a people who are taking this book for the first time, being, being informed and affirmed in the character and nature of the Lord. Service. Service, right? That's the response. Do we have that? Let's continue on in the, in the story. So they said, verse 5, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, 
Right? Three seeds of fine flour kneaded and made cakes. And Abraham ran to the, to the herd and, t- and take a calf and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Verse 8. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. We see not only this this commitment from Abraham to to serve the Lord, uh, but we also see the Lord receiving the service of Abraham and responding in a, a really neat and a really encouraging way for those of us who are familiar with the story up until this point. He, he responds by, um, by providing a time frame. And you think, wow, like really impressive, like great, thanks. Only it's the object of the time frame. It's the information that's being communicated in which we find this great value that serves to further bring us into deeper realization of who God is and understanding his nature. He provides a time frame for the birth of the promised heir, a son, that which Abraham and his bride have been waiting for. Right? At times, even embracing sinful behavior in this plan to circumvent the timing of the Lord and produce an heir on their, uh, by their own um, desire, right? And according to their, to their own plans and to their own purposes. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, well, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, this isn't new information. The, the, the idea that Sarah is to have a son, is it? Right? This is familiar. We, we talked about it going back to Genesis chapter 12. However, while we've seen this promise affirmed by the Lord at various points over the last few chapters, this is the first time that there is a specific point. We're here. And um, we're going to leave, but I'm going to come back in like a year, and you're going to have a son. That's new, isn't it? Right? That's, new, that's new information. Sarah's response is similar to that of Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. How does she respond? You're smart people. She laughs. That's exactly what we saw from Abraham last week, isn't it? Abraham laughs in, um, in 17, and now we see Sarah laughing to herself in 18. She laughs and says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? After I'm worn out, right? Things that women can say that men can't. Write that down, okay? That's free. What she's saying is this, that that the years have have passed. Even when this promise came initially, and when I was barren, it it was more gloriously incomprehensible than we could even begin to fathom. And now I'm old, right? Not only am I barren, but I'm old and barren. This is laughable. 
Now you're going to do this. Now I shall have pleasure. The Lord, aware of Sarah's response, takes this opportunity to inform a new perspective by which Sarah, Abraham, and and you and I see the world and our circumstances. He says this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord says at the appointed time, I will return to you and Sarah shall have a son. Here's an idea that I want us to to spend just a moment on. I want you to write this down. I want you to consider this. This is where we are in the story. God's purpose, God's grace is not and will not be held captive. This is where we are. This is what what the Lord says. God's purpose, God's grace, God's plan, God's mission will not be held captive. It won't be held captive by sin. It won't be held captive by circumstance. It won't be held captive by doubt. It won't be held captive by confusion. It won't be held captive by perception. Why? Well, because of who he is. Because of who he is. I came across a a wonderful article um, from Desiring God this past week. We love the boys at Desiring God. They put out some incredible resources. If that is not a place that you visit often um, for discipleship and spiritual growth, You ought to. It was an article from 1995. In fact, it was a letter written from uh, then-pastor John Piper to his congregants in which he is addressing a a, a shortcoming in terms of giving. I want to say that they were like $200,000 in the hole at this point, like under budget. It was like November, okay? And he wrote this letter to the fellowship at Bethlehem, and he highlighted these specific points. And and leaning on the reality that is spoken from the Lord in Genesis chapter 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? And he, he reminded me, as I leaned into, right, as you are now leaning into, of what the God of what God has done. And I want to remind you of that. God created the universe out of nothing. John 1 1. Right? He, he split the Red Sea in Exodus 14 22. He brought bread from the sky in Exodus 16 15. He brought water from a rock in Numbers 20 11. He shut the lion's mouths to protect Daniel in Daniel 6 22. He caused a virgin to conceive a child in Luke chapter 1. When we consider um, the incarnation, this issue in Genesis 18 becomes much lighter, doesn't it? He cleansed lepers in Luke 17 and healed the lame in Matthew 15. He gave sight to the blind in Matthew 9, hearing to the deaf in Mark 7. He fed five thousand with a little boy's lunchable in Matthew 14 and raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Only then to give himself 
as a, as a willing and sufficient sacrifice on the cross in order that sinners might be forgiven. Dying before rising three days later, victorious. This is who our God is. We have a unique opportunity living on this side of the cross, this side of redemption history, to look back and to consider the way that everything here informs the way that we understand what is here. Why? Well, because the call remains the same. Whether we find ourselves here in Genesis 18 or whether we find ourselves here in Matthew 26 or whether we find ourselves over here in Philippians chapter 2 or whether we find ourselves over here in 2 Peter chapter 3 or Revelation chapter 1 or Revelation 21 or Revelation 22, the Lord's call is the same and it is simple. Trust I trust, trust that I will provide. A life of faith often involves stepping back from difficulty. Right? A life of faith often involves stepping back from disappointment or uncertainty or unfulfilled expectations. Are we familiar with this? Are we connecting here? Yes? And evaluating them in light of the promise of God and his trustworthiness. Genesis 18, 1. We observe the Lord before Abraham, having called, having sustained, having delivered and blessed. Now providing new insight into his promise. One very well, uh, very well-known pastor and theologian said it like this, of this passage and the way that God works. Here and here, okay? God waits until it is humanly impossible for the child of the covenant to be born. That's what Sarah is laughing about. The, the situation, the circumstance has only become increasingly more desperate, right? Before I was barren, but I was young. Now I am barren and I am old. Why in the world have we waited for so long? This is answering a question that many of you have perhaps been wrestling with over the past few weeks. Why between Genesis chapter 12 and where we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 18 and this year into the future, what is taking so long? Why is the story taking so long to progress? There is this promise of an heir. There's this covenant promise and it's continuing to progress and we see the characters here in the story and we observe characters here in the story struggling. Why does the Lord take so long? Well, he he waits in order to show that it is not by human effort that the covenant people of God will be created. It's not by... It's not by the efforts of Abraham. It's not by the efforts of Sarah. If it was, then then the laughs of Genesis 17 and 18 begin to make more sense. He's showing them that it doesn't rest on them. But it rests on who? It rests on him. Do you ever ask yourself that question? Like, Lord... Why? Like, why is it taking so long? 
Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm connecting. I do. I think you do probably too. Ready? He brings us to the end of ourselves until we have worked and tried and exhausted ourselves. And then he does what only he can do, which serves as a source of great comfort for an exhausted people. The idea continues, right? That it is a a work of divine and sovereign grace that all of this is happening. The formation of a people of God for the sake of his name from all the families of the earth is not a human creation. It's his. Right? Ishmael was a, a symbol of Abram and Sarai's unbelief. The heir of Abram produced by supernatural, natural means would serve as an ever-present reminder of the power of God and his providential work. We're brought to the end, right? Abraham and Sarah are brought to the end of themselves. They are, they are ushered into laughable circumstance, in order that as the Lord fulfills his plan and his mission, which we said a few weeks ago, is sure, amen? Like the Lord's mission is sure. Victory is assured. We are, as God's people, like not dismayed as we gather in this room together this morning. And we consider the magnitude of the work before us as we seek to, as his people, live in obedience to his call. We are not dismayed. We are not overcome. Why? Because it doesn't rest on us. Amen? Like it doesn't rest on us. We desire to live in obedience to the God who holds all things together and works his perfect plan in accordance with his perfect will. All in perfect timing. This is where we are. This ever-present reminder of the power of God. We see here, as we um, observe chapter 18, the blessings of the Lord for Abraham and his bride. We're going to transition at this point into the second half of chapter 18, and then like some of 19. But we're going to come back to 19 next week. We'll spend much more time there next week. Um, And here's what I want us to begin to grasp over the course of the second bit of our time together. I want us to observe the salvation of God and his divine judgment. We've seen blessing. We've seen mercy. Right? This continues as we observe salvation. But also there is coupled with this divine judgment from the Lord. Look with me at verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. Now what do we know about Sodom? Tight place or like not tight place? Not tight place. A very wicked place, very, very evil place. We will have um, opportunity to observe that in like coming verses. But if we reflect back on where we have been, we remember Lot and Abram's separation, right? Lot leaves the covenant community of God and he ventures to the outskirts of Sodom before ultimately setting up camp in the city. A very wicked place. These men are... Here And they're here for a purpose. They looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. 
Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Again, this is the right response to like a redeemed heart. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry uh, against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very great. Verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But there's this interaction that takes place first. Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, if we just stop there, we go, okay, it appears as though we've got a couple of guys who are on their way to a wicked city to begin delving out like divine judgment and justice. And Abraham happens to like step in the way, right? Something bigger than that's going on here. Something, something greater than that is going on here that points us towards and provides for us an image, ultimately, of Christ Jesus. We see as Abram steps before the Lord, stood before the Lord, he stood as one preparing to plead his case for his people. It's almost as though um, it's, it's, it's like the kind of the lawyer imagery that's easy to play upon, right? That he steps into, preparing to argue for. That's the posture that Abraham takes as we uh, read in verse 22, verse 23. Abraham drew near and he said, so here he's prepared. He's got a, a posture. Now he has this message, right? A question. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Abraham does something here that is unique to Abraham up until this point. Abraham does something here that we have yet to observe. He begins petitioning. Now that's not the new part. What's new here is that Abraham begins petitioning not just for those closest to him, Lot and his family, but for All people. How does he do that? Well, we observe it in the dialogue that follows. Look with me at verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. We see Abraham here in essence asking the Lord, can the righteousness of some produce rescue for many? Will the whole community become beneficiaries of 50 righteous? Surely you won't sweep them all away. And so if there are 50, will you spare them? Remember what we know about Sodom. Remember what we know about this community. It is incredibly wicked. And yet there is this beautiful heart 
from Abraham here, desiring rescue, desiring rescue for many, desiring the righteousness of some to cover the iniquity of them all. Is this familiar? Hang with me because we're going to get to it. We've got to continue unpacking it though. And the Lord said, if I find 50 at Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, then I will spare the whole place for their sake. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Humble posture, humble speech. This is not lip service. Verse 28, Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And so what is this question? If there's 45, then, like, well, how, how flexible are we with this? Right? If there's, if there's 45, then are we going to sweep everybody away? Or, or will there indeed be reprieve? Verse 29. Again, he spoke to him and said, uh, no, here, let's rewind. 28. And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. Verse 29, again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40 I will not do it. Verse 30, then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. You get a feeling, right, that Abraham's beginning to wonder, Am I pushing my luck here, right? And I will speak, Suppose 30 are found there. The Lord answers, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. We're seeing a pattern. Right? We, we're seeing a pattern develop here. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this one, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Verse 33, And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. What do we gather from this dialogue? This is where we're going to begin to to close out our time. What do we get from this? We observe, as, as one has so eloquently said before, that God wills to save And that his will to save is greater than his will to punish. Abraham didn't end up saving Sodom. We we wait for Abraham to say say this, God, you are an amazingly righteous and gracious God. Will you save Sodom for one righteous person? Isn't that the pattern that develops? 45, 30... 20, we're going all the way down, only for some reason we get to 10. And it's so Abraham is just too terrified to go any further. Maybe the pattern is developed and the answer is, yeah, the Lord will. But he doesn't go that far, does he? A part of me wonders, like, can Abraham take it? <laughs> like, can he take it? He certainly knows that Lot can't take it. He doesn't go that far, does he? Instead, he goes home at 10. Lot is only, as we will observe next week, relatively righteous. 
In fact, we see a really difficult response from Lot to the crowd requesting the company of his guests in chapter 19 as he offers his daughters to them in order to divert their attention from the men. It's challenging. In chapter 18, Abraham goes home knowing that the Lord would spare many, but that it would require the right, righteous person. That is the message. So the question that we're left asking then is is who? If the Lord is willing to, to spare judgment for the many, for the right, righteous person, who is that person? Who is the righteous one? Who can, who can rescue sinners? Who can rescue the wicked? It's our king, isn't it? It's our king. It's, it's Christ Jesus, the one who can save people. Abraham risks his life for the people that he was praying for. Jesus gives his life for those that he prayed for. The righteousness of Jesus, the only true righteous person, can save us. Our wickedness is, is drawn out through the word of God. Is it, ex- it is exposed to us and to the world. We see our great need and we are left grasping for the righteous one who can rescue. We find this righteous one in Christ Jesus. The only one who can fulfill what Abraham is asking of God with relation to Sodom. Timothy Keller says it like this. Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you. So when, not if, but but when you recover strength, the brethren, Jesus has prayed for Peter, he says. Jesus is the high priest that cannot be turned down. He is the one truly righteous one who saves the unrighteous. By what? By his righteousness. There's rescue for the unrighteous. And that rescue is found as we take refuge in our King. We take refuge in Christ Jesus and his righteous life poured out for the sake of sinners so that we might indeed, flash all the way back to the beginning, know friendship with God. So that we can be friends not, not enemies or, or objects of wrath as we are outside of his grace currently residing, but instead that we might know fellowship, that we might know community, that we might know him, right? That we might be brought into, into, into this, this most unique and beautiful relationship with him, that our relationships might be informed by who he is. This produces within us worship. It ought to, when we understand our posture, when we understand our need, and we understand ourselves in this story, not as the righteous rescuer, but instead of those, as those worthy of wrath. We can know friendship, we can know fellowship, we can know intimacy with God. And all of this produces within us a posture that mirrors that of Abraham as we work through chapter uh, 18 and on into chapter 19. And so let's stop there for the week. Let's stop there. There is a righteous one who rescues the unrighteous and it's Christ Jesus. Do you know him? Do you you know him? Have you believed on the gospel? 
You embrace Christ's righteous work for you. That's where we're going to close our time. As we, as we, part one, mercy and judgment. We'll pick it up next week. Let's pray.